Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that we would learn from it. We would learn of you. We would learn of ourselves. And that you would fill our hearts with faith, with love because of it. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are continuing our exploration of the book of Daniel this morning. And we are now in the fifth chapter where we are introduced to a new character. And this character is Belshazzar, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was the focal point for the first four chapters of Daniel. But in chapter five, he's, he's out of the picture altogether. We received no notification of either his death or resignation. But at the beginning of chapter five, he's apparently gone. And his son, Belshazzar, has taken his place on the throne. As we are introduced to Belshazzar, we, we meet him with, with hope in our hearts. Because we're introduced to him with the last words we heard his father speak still ringing in our ears. They are told to us at the end of chapter 4. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are truth and his ways are justice. And he's able to bring low those who walk in pride. Surely, witnessing his father's mental breakdown and subsequent confession of faith in the clarity of his restored mind and position must have impacted Belshazzar for good. Surely, after witnessing the extreme change in his father from proud and paranoid to humble and happy, Belshazzar would have listened to his father. Surely, right? We are introduced to Belshazzar with this hope in our hearts. But the opening scene in chapter 5 disabuses us of any such naive ideas. It turns out that Belshazzar has not learned a thing from his father. There he is in the opening scene of chapter 5, surrounded by a thousand men of influence, along with his wives and mistresses, relationships defined by diplomacy and pleasure rather than love. Together they are getting drunk and reveling in a life without any restraint. Verse 2 tells us that, that under the influence of wine, when he had tasted the wine, Belshazzar made a request that reveals, reveals just how fond he was of himself. He believed himself to be more powerful than the God whom his own father praised. He requested that the gold and silver vessels that his father had stolen from the God whose temple was in Jerusalem be fetched for him. And these he filled up with wine and he raised his glass to the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. He was insulting God. He desecrated the vessels that had been dedicated for the worship of God by using them to get drunk. It was like piercing a man through with his own sword. Belshazzar was interested in God only to insult him and to defy him and to prove himself stronger. The kind of God that Belshazzar preferred was made of wood and stone. The kind of God that is still in hot demand today. One that can't speak and doesn't object and can be patronizingly patted on the head. A God who only exists to serve us and make us successful in this world. To make us happy. 
In the pride and arrogance of his heart, Belshazzar pays no attention to history and has no need to learn from the experiences of others. He believes that for him, things will be different. He's cut from a different cloth. He doesn't need the fanatical religion that his mentally ill father turned to in his old age. He flaunts his wealth and flexes his muscles and flashes his intellect, all while winking at death. He believes in himself completely, which our society promotes and applauds, but is in actuality a very dangerous thing to do. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, asks, Shall I tell you where the, man, where the men are who believe most in themselves? For I can tell you. I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success. I can guide you to the thrones of these supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. Actors who can't act believe in themselves and debtors who won't pay. It would be much truer to say that a man will certainly fail because he believes in himself. Complete self-confidence is not merely a sin. Complete self-confidence is a weakness. Believing utterly in oneself is a hysterical and superstitious belief. Leave it up to Chesterton to state the obvious in unavoidable terms. And here he does it again. The mantra of our society, just believe in yourself. Don't listen to the haters. This is the sin that leads humanity into isolation and insanity. It is the hysterical and superstitious belief that plagues us fallen human beings. And there Belshazzar is in the opening scene, believing in himself, celebrating himself. Because he believes in himself far more than he does any God who might suggest that it's the meek who will inherit the earth. The story written as it is on the heels of Nebuchadnezzar's confession of faith is obviously intended to portray Belshazzar as a disappointment. Indeed, his behavior is disappointing, but not shocking. Because Belshazzar is merely acting as a fallen human being in need of redemption. Belshazzar is, is actually supposed to be the character with whom we most identify in this story. You strip away the wealth and the royal robes and the silver and the golden vessels, the lords and ladies. And what remains is a, a person who enjoys being celebrated. He believes in himself completely. He wants to be free, but he mistakes revelry and riches for freedom. He takes good things and he allows them to control him, thus turning them bad. Things like wine. He wants to live a life free of any hindrances, and so he chooses a God that will not challenge him. Transport Belshazzar into our present day, and his actions and his desires are, are typical. He's one of us, a fallen human being in need of redemption. It is him who we should see ourselves in. And the warning that comes to him in the form of a mysterious floating hand writing something ominous and secret on a wall is a warning to us all. The sight of it alone cuts him to the quick. He cannot read the words being scrawled on the wall, but he knew it could be nothing good. Verse 6 tells us that his face turned pale and his thoughts terrified him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He was right to react in this way. 
Because when Daniel was summoned to read the writing aloud, it said this, Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. Verses 26 through 28 tell us the meaning of these Aramaic words. Mene, your days and the days of your kingdom are numbered. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Parson, your kingdom will be given over to the Medes and Persians. In other words, Belshazzar believed that all he needed was himself, just to believe in himself. He was self-sufficient, reliant upon no one, like a god among mere mortals. He provided the wine that others got drunk on. Now, on account of his fortune, he was able to sustain this mirage. But when weighed on the scales of God's perfect justice and righteousness, the mirage disappeared. And Belshazzar was exposed as a mere human being who was as broken as you and I are. He was weighed and found wanting, just like we are weighed on the eternal scales of God's justice and righteousness and found wanting. The consequence for such insufficiency, for such sin, is that the monuments we build to our own glory whether in reality or in our own minds and imagination, they'll be taken from us. Belshazzar's kingdom of comfort would disappear. And that very night, Belshazzar died and returned to the dust from which he was made. The thing that tips the scales against us is not that we do bad things. It's that we are from birth and by nature corrupt. We are vessels designated for holy use, but from birth fill up our lives, not with praise for our creator, but rather self-justification and self-righteousness and self-preservation. We're all about ourselves. It's a desecration of humanity. It might be easy to read our story this morning and think that Belshazzar was put to death merely because he got drunk from the gold and silver vessels that had been designated for holy purpose in the temple. And this was certainly offensive. And I don't know that merely is the proper word to describe his actions, but the desecration of these vessels designated for holy use is only the symptom of a far greater desecration, the desecration of Belshazzar himself that self-desecration of humanity. In verse 23, Daniel lays the charge against Belshazzar. You've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. The vessels of his temple have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and mistresses have been drinking from them. And this is the, the particular offense of Belshazzar. But Daniel goes on. You've praised gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose power and whose hand is your very breath and to whom belong all your ways you have not honored. The desecration of the gold and silver vessels was offensive, but the greater offense lies in the fact that it is God who animates Belshazzar and all of humanity but we do not recognize him. It is his breath in our bodies. And when we die, it's because God has taken back his breath with one final inhale. He breathes in one last time and the oxygen leaves our body for good. 
This is how fragile and utterly dependent our lives are upon God. And yet we neither recognize him nor use the breath he has given us to sing his praises. There are many offensive things we do in life, but our real problem is one of nature. We are holy vessels, which God set in this world to care for each other and the good creation he has made and to give him glory and praise. But we've been desecrated by sin. And the cups of our lives are filled up with poison and wrath. God sees us just as he saw Belshazzar and we deserve death. We have been weighed and found wanting. But in the history of humanity, there has been one person who has been put on the scales of God's divine justice and they did not tip against him. He was perfect. He was weighed, found not wanting. All that he did was acceptable and pleasing to God because this person was God in the flesh. Jesus Christ, the righteous. God looked at us. Every last one of us was Belshazzar. And the only way he could satisfy his demand for justice would be to let us die in our sin. But it is God's character to also be gracious and loving. So he sent his only well-beloved son to become like one of us, to become a human being. Some people didn't like him. And he was tempted and he was tired and even angry at times, but he never sinned. He could be perfect because he was perfect. He was weighed on the scales and found sufficient, but still he was put to death. His fate was the same as Belshazzar. He was killed. But Belshazzar man, while Jesus died an innocent one, he died so that wanting and sinful as we are, we might not have to pay the consequences for our sin because he already has. The innocent one taking the place of the guilty out of love. He died so that we, the guilty, might not have to be put on the scales at all. Our names are called to step onto the scale of God's justice. And there we see the son of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, already standing there in our place. Were we to step onto the scale, we would surely be found wanting, but we never have to because he has stepped in for us and his righteousness and his perfection are ours through faith. God looks at us with all of our lingering imperfections and sin, and he declares us righteous on account of the life and death of Jesus. In Jesus, we are forgiven and our sins are pardoned. We remain vessels that are recovering from our desecration, but he loves us just the same. We have dents and scratches, dross and smudges, but we have been redeemed and are being put to holy purposes once again. He is working through us even as he works on us. The Holy Spirit uses us as an instrument to carry out the will of God in this world while simultaneously banging out the dents, polishing the smudges, and burning the dross from our lives. It is the process we call sanctification. He has redeemed us, but he will not leave us alone until we are restored to the state of perfection from which we fell. The Holy Spirit pursues his work of restoration in us by exposing the false narratives that we've inherited from a broken world and adopted unquestioningly. Lies like believe in yourself. Lies like freedom is the absence of restriction. 
lies like we're better than our ancestors. Belshazzar embodied these lies and it killed him. He had Nebuchadnezzar to learn from, but he refused to listen. We have Belshazzar to learn from. Let us not make the same mistake. Rather, let us embrace the testimony of the one who knows us as we are, wanting and disappointing and full of sin, but who loves us endlessly in Jesus nonetheless. He pulls no punches with his evaluation of us, but the cross testifies to our persistent worth in his eyes. He loves us literally to death. It is said that believing in yourself will increase your sense of self-esteem and make you feel fulfilled. In truth, it makes you isolated and insane. Believing rather in the one who truly knows you with all of your ugly and bad parts, but loves you still. That, that will make your heart swell with joy and set you free. You have been weighed and found wanting. But in Jesus Christ, we see that we are both wanting and wanted. Let us live in the joy of this love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.